You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 46, The Treaty of Solnit. In March 1492, the town burghers and the Knights of Gelders hailed Charles of Egmont as their duke, beginning a four-decade period of bitter contested conflict with the Habsburg Burgundian state. That's right, just as the revolts in Flanders came to an end with the surrender of Slaus, the football of violent defiance was handballed from Flanders to Gelders. But across most of the Low Countries, a period of relative calm would ensue as the Prince Natural of Burgundy, Philip the Handsome, was now 14 years old and would soon come to rule in his own right, deflating the angst that people had at being governed by a foreign prince for the past 15 years. The final siren on this era of instability was blown on May 23rd, 1493, with the signing of the Treaty of Saint-Lys between Charles VIII, Maximilian, and Philip the Handsome. This treaty released Margaret of Austria from captivity in France and saw the counties of Artois, Burgundy and Charolais returned to Team Habsburg. Not long after Saint-Lys, Emperor Frederick III would die, essentially elevating Maximilian to that role. The times they were a-changing, which is basically what all times do. And these were certainly times... The end of the 15th century is a peculiar one for looking at some ideas of identity within the Low Countries. A more encompassing Burgundian identity had emerged, grown and strengthened in parts of the Low Countries over the previous century, as exhibited by the catchcry of Vive Burgogne that was often heard throughout the period of revolt and warfare. Yet, Individual ideas of belonging were still largely determined on a local basis. Partisanship and factionalism still drove the mechanics of town and city governance at the end of the 15th century, just as it had in the 13th and 14th centuries, and this did not wane, even in the face of strengthened ducal power. Arguably, the centralization of Burgundy went hand-in-hand with continually strong grassroots identity politics, issues that arose on a, dare I say it, national stage, such as being a pro or anti-maxer, whether France and England were to be trusted or not, the devaluement of the currency, the treatment of Margaret of Austria, or, and here's a pretty important one, whether you could get any food or not, were discussed and argued on local levels before being moved up towards the States General and before the Prince. It was on local levels that people's group identities were formed and solidified, and often it was the groups one belonged to that set the tone of one's opinion. Sound familiar? How you felt about an issue would depend mostly on what class of society you belonged to, what group within that class, and where regionally you were doing all this belonging. The stance, a weaver, fuller, or porter from Ghent, 
would take towards an issue might differ from that a weaver, fuller, or porter from Ipa would, for example, just because of different local agendas. People's and groups' thoughts and opinions on quote-unquote Burgundian issues differed from Friesland to Flanders, from Holland to Liège. There was a lot of, I belong to this group from this particular place, and because of all the history, customs, interests, interdependencies and traditions of this group identity that I belong to, that we have either inherited or chosen, this is what we stand for on this issue. Identity markers differed from region to region, town to town, class to class, and people's opinions were informed as a result. Someone's francophobia or francophilia would depend more on what kind of interaction with and dependency on French speakers they had than how strongly they supported their anti-French duke. It is important to keep this in mind as the roller coaster of the 16th century takes us plummeting towards a whole lot of contentious issues and, spoiler alert, a pretty large fracturing of society into many more group identities. Such regional identity politics were also at the heart of the four decades-long road of war, rebellion, and punishment that Gelders is about to embark upon as a relative period of peace, growth, and stability born of the exhaustion from war is enjoyed in the South. Gelders occupies a particular space on the map of the Low Countries that has it straddling the Great Rhine River, as in the Rhine runs straight through it. All the way back in our earliest episodes, we spoke about the importance of rivers, and particularly the Rhine River to our story. Remember that in the minds of the Romans, the Rhine was a specific border that separated Gaul from Germania, dividing one particular group from another. Of course, this is absolute rubbish, but by the end of the 15th century, the inheritance of this Roman perception had held fast. In the minds of many Geldarians, particularly town citizens, just as Geldarian territory stretched over the Rhine and into the imperial Germanic lands, so too did their identity. Perhaps more than any other of the Low Countries, entrenched within Geldarian identity politics was the narrative that they belonged naturally within the Empire. Gelders boasts one of the oldest settlements in the Low Countries, Nijmegen, which began as a Roman outpost. The city, being the most powerful in Gelders, was a physical attachment to a Geldarian narrative that tied them directly to the Reich. As is the way of these things, this then also tied them directly back to the ancient Roman Empire, which is not entirely incorrect, as it had begun as a Roman fort, which was granted imperial rights by the Emperor Frederick II way back in 1230. Not even 20 years after this, though, these rights had been sold off to the Count of Gelders by the King of the Romans, William II, whose story we touched on way back in the first half of episode 11, The Murder of Florus V. Anyway, Geldarians, and in particular Neimechners, were more than willing to overlook that little detail, and, by the late 15th century, were still invested in their connection with the Romans and with the Empire. Contemporary 15th century Geldarian chronicler Willem von Berken, a Neimechen native who lived from around 1415 to 1481, was the canon of a church which had a 12th century memorial stone in it. The stone marked the restoration of the fortress at Nijmegen by Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, and on it claimed that the first Roman monarch, Julius Caesar, had personally founded Nijmegen. Van Berken, writing three centuries after the stone was stuck in the church, sticks fast to this story. He claims also that Charlemagne had restored it, even four centuries before Frederick Barbarossa did. Quote, Nijmegen is not bound by feudalities because Nijmegen is imperial. Yes, our imperial town of Nijmegen excels among all the cities and places in our region, generously endowed with grants and privileges by many Roman kings and emperors to the advantage and honour of the empire. End quote. 
Another contemporary, poet Johannes de Speculo, who lived in the town of Erkelens, which is south of Nijmegen, but east enough to today actually be in Germany, dedicated whole works to the story of Julius Caesar personally building dikes and seizing the land from the clutches of the sea. So this narrative and concept of Geldarian identity being born out of Rome was pretty strong and pretty widely spread. As a result, because of these particular imperial identity markers, major establishments and states outside the empire, such as, just off the top of my head, Burgundy or France, could go and get stuffed. With the rise and aggression of Burgundy, a natural sense in Gelders of Burgundy being the other, only became more and more solidified until it turned into outright contempt. This is succinctly put by Art Nordza in his article Against Burgundy, The Appeal of Germany in the Duchy of Gelders, which is also a responsive argument to another seminal book on the Geldarian court of the period called In the Shadow of Burgundy by Gerard Neiston, both of which we have leaned upon heavily. Quote, The cities and knights of Gelders and most of the dukes were strongly oriented towards the east, towards the empire, towards Germany. This orientation involved a fundamental mistrust of Burgundy. The empire and Germany stood for liberty, freedom, and self-determination, while Burgundy and France were associated with oppression and servitude. End quote. We have been loosely following the contemporary goings-on in Gelders for some time, and with these particular events since episode 32. Since our production of this podcast seems to have slowed down into real-time history pace, that probably feels like it was actually 30 years ago. So to quickly bring us all back onto the same page, in that episode we saw how in 1463 the Duke of Gelders, Arnold, had been abducted by men in the service of his son, Adolf. Charles the Bold had directly intervened in 1471, while the younger Adolf was actually staying with him at Hesdin. Charles's troops had broken the older Arnold out of prison and brought him before the Duke of Burgundy, whereupon Charles had ordered Adolf to cede to his father. Adolf, bringing in the imperial identity narrative just mentioned, had told Charles the Bold that he answered only to his liege lord, the Emperor. Following this, the older Arnold was released back to Helders to drum up support for Burgundy, whereas Adolf remained with Charles, tried to escape, was recaptured, and thereafter, just like his father had been, was imprisoned. In Gelders, the older Arnold had largely failed to get the support of the estates, probably much because, again, quote, Burgundy was associated with oppression and servitude, end quote. Arnold had then sold off the duchy to Charles, and three days after signing the will, he died, leaving the Duke of Burgundy as also the Duke of Gelders. To ram the point home, Charles had then brought his ducal death train upon the duchy, really not doing a great job of changing the perception that, quote, Burgundy was associated with oppression and servitude, end quote. By the summer of 1473, Charles had conquered the city of Nijmegen and taken over Gelders, instituting an oppressive occupying administration that cemented the Burgundian reputation in the duchy. Adolf's children, with Catherine of Bourbon, twins named Charles and Philippa, were wrapped up in Burgundian cloth and shifted off to the south to be raised in Ghent. Adolf remained imprisoned in Hesdin, and his inheritance was sold off to Burgundy. When Charles the Bold died and the turmoil of Mary's succession began, the reaction in Gelders was to cast off the stiff Burgundian yoke. The occupying administration crumbled. A friar from the town of nearby Duisburg wrote of this, quote, Then, 
all those who had subjugated the country of Gelders and as officials instituted by the Duke had ruled it, turned their back to flee, all of them to their own country, so that in a few days, indeed, not one of those alien French or Picards could be seen in the country, yet countless of them had occupied the country only to lay it to waste. End quote. As for Adolf, well, in episode 38, we saw how he was eventually released from prison in 1477. He tried to win the hand of Mary of Burgundy in marriage, but rather won an inglorious death by Frenchmen while at the head of a squabbling Flemish army. His sister, another Catherine, had ruled Gelders in his stead, but was always under threat by their uncle, William of Egmont, who was pro-Burgundian. By 1481, Maximilian had managed to isolate Catherine, forcing her into a deal that left Gelders pacified for the time being. But being kept busy with the other goings-on throughout his territories in the Low Countries, Maximilian was unable to quell the resentment felt in Gelders towards Burgundy. Another strange example of identity politics emerges here, particular to Gelders actually. Even though there was a pro-imperial history and sentiment, and Maximilian was literally the son and successor of the emperor, he was also the head of the Burgundian army that conquered the territory in 1481 and whose administrators were once again seeking to take charge of the duchy. In so many of the Low Countries, anti-Maxa outrage had come from his being a foreign imperial prince. In Gelders, no matter how imperial he was, he was still Burgundy. Local hopes for independence had to find another candidate for leading them, and the one that made sense was the young male of Adolf's children, Charles, who was being brought up as essentially a high noble hostage of the Burgundian state. There isn't a lot of information available about the earliest years of Charles of Egmont's life, but what is known suggests that he was brought up by the Burgundian court with the type of dignity and decorum that somebody of his privileged position might expect. When he and his sister were brought to Ghent in the summer of 1473, they were just five years old. The children featured in the pageantry of the ducal court. Both had held candles at Mary of Burgundy and Maximilian's wedding in 1477, and Charles had stood directly behind the Archduke Maximilian at Mary's funeral less than five years later. On her deathbed, probably feeling a little guilty about holding the two noble children hostage for years, Mary of Burgundy had included in her testament that Charles and Philippa should either be reinstated in Gelders or be given an equivalent position of honour. Perhaps as a gesture towards the last wishes of his wife, Maximilian did in fact accede to a request by Anne of Beaujeu, the regent of France, for Philippa to be released and sent to the French court. Why would Anne of Beaujeu care about them? Well, because she was married to Peter of Beaujeu, of course, and he happened to be their uncle. On the 1st of September, 1485, the Beaujeus organized for Philippa to be married to René II of Lorraine, the guy who had defeated Charles the Bold at Nancy. Marrying the man who had killed the guy who had taken her hostage as a child and stolen her familial lands must have been quite a satisfying moment, I imagine. They would end up having 12 children together over the next 20 years, so quite satisfying, it would seem. Charles, however, remained in Maximilian's grasp. His teacher was Maximilian's right-hand man in the Low Countries, Engelbert of Nassau, who taught Charles all about politics and warfare. He learned to speak French fluently, but never really mastered the Dutch language. At the age of 17, Charles took part in the Siege of Aldenarde in 1484, fighting on behalf of Maximilian against the rebellious Flemish. In 1487, he again fought in one of Maximilian's battles, this time against the French at the Battle of Bethune. During this battle, however, Charles and his military tactics teacher, Engelbert of Nassau, were themselves taught a lesson by Philip de Crevecoeur, that old dog. Yes, they were captured by the ancient Marshal of France and taken into custody. For the next five years, 
Charles would take part in his family's now time-honoured tradition of being held prisoner, in his case, in Peron, as a guest of the French king. During this period, various attempts were made by Maximilian to get Charles of Egmont freed from captivity, presumably so he could once again take him into his own custody. Philip de Crevecoeur, however, set the ransom for Charles of Egmont at the ludicrously large sum of 200,000 francs. Maximilian balked at this suggestion, pointing out that Charles was a prince without a country, and he offered 70,000 instead. That deal was not accepted. Maximilian then tried to appeal to the Duke and the Duchess of Bourbon to get them to help negotiate with the King of France to get the demanded ransom reduced. But when Maximilian tried to marry Anne of Brittany behind the French king's back, well, any chance he had of winning sympathetic gestures was ruled out. In September 1491, he did develop a few plans with René II, the Duke of Lorraine, to split the ransom between them, but these plans never came to anything. This is mainly because, unbeknownst to them all, the anti-Burgundian crew in Gelders had also been plotting and scheming. The Burgundian government in Gelders had been critically weakened by the level of resources that the French and Flemish crises had demanded. The town estates and the Knights of Gelders, led by a local count called Vincent van Moers, started correspondence with Charles imprisoned in Peron in 1489. They were looking to pay his ransom and get him released so he could return and be installed as an independent Duke of Gelders. They didn't even manage to raise half of the funds that Crevacour had demanded, but Van Moers convinced, or he outright ordered, his grandson to go down as a proxy prisoner and step in for Charles until the rest of the ransom was paid. Only for a couple of months, they told him. If you haven't listened to our bonus episode on the history of comics in the Low Countries, this is the story that we cover at the beginning of that. So it was that at the beginning of 1492, Vincent van Meur's grandson stepped into the cell at Peron and Charles of Egmont stepped out as a free man. Imagine for a second what must have been going through Charles of Egmont's mind now, but also throughout these five years of imprisonment at Peron. He had been held captive for pretty much his entire life, even if treated with noble gloves. First, he was held by Charles the Bold, then Mary of Burgundy, then Maximilian. He had fought for Maximilian against the French, but then was captured by the French and left hanging for five more years by Maximilian, the bloke he had risked his life for in the first place. Charles must have been fuming when a chapter of the Order of the Golden Fleece named him to their ranks in 1491. It was the highest honour a nobleman could get, yet he still remained imprisoned. This would remain forever a sore point for the young Duke of Gelders. In his dissertation on this topic, titled Gelders and Habsburg 1492-1527, Jules Stroke writes of the, quote, bitterness that the young Duke would carry with him all his life and the attitude of Maximilian, who abandoned him when he had just been caught in his service. He will speak of it later with fierce resentment, with the convulsive hatred of someone who, as a child and growing man, was hurt to the very depths of his being. He returns repeatedly to this painful childhood memory. End quote. This is somewhat reminiscent to what he had done with Philip of Cleves. Maximilian once again burning a young nobleman, turning a potentially useful pawn into a powerful enemy who would remain a thorn in his and his family's side for years, or in this case, decades. Because having finally won his freedom at the age of 24 for the first time in nearly 20 years, Charles of Egmont would spend the rest of his life violently hanging on to it. Having successfully purchased the freedom of Charles of Egmont, the towns and states of Gelders began to rumble with revolution and revolt against their weakened Habsburg overlords. Maximilian wrote to Charles on February 6, 1492, explaining all the attempts he had made to get him released from jail and trying to convince him to go to Ghent. Ha, yeah, right. 
And finally, to definitely not make war against him. He mustn't do that. Maximilian also sent an advisor named Cornelis van Berken to go and assess the situation and to make sure the Maximilian Stadthalder in Gelders, Adolf of Nassau, was making necessary defensive preparations just in case war came. But van Berken wrote back to Maximilian with the perspective of a realist that Charles's takeover of Gelders would be, quote, short work, end quote. Adolf of Nassau had been powerless to even stop Vincent van Meurs' GoFundMe campaign to free Charles of Egmont. There was little chance now of him stopping his comeback. In mid-March, his fate was sealed in this conflict when he was taken prisoner in the town of Arnhem and promptly kicked out of the city. Ajou. On March 25th, 1492, Charles of Egmont arrived in the town of Ruremond and shortly thereafter pretty much the entirety of Gelders recognized him as Charles II, the rightful duke. Only a few stronghold castles defied him, as well as the town of Wacheningen, which was under the occupation of a Maximilian loyalist. This was problematic because of its strategic position, from which one can cause havoc on the communities of the Beethoven and as far as Utrecht. The entire territorial takeover was remarkably quick, aided by the fact that so much of Gelders was already united behind the return of Duke Charles II. When Charles the Bold had marched into Gelders two decades earlier, the unity of the nobility had already been fractured by the infighting and squabbling during the Arnold and Adolf feud, and the Duke of Burgundy had been able to rule with an iron fist. Maximilian's rule had been softer in its approach towards Gelders, highly constrained and distracted as he was by needing to deal with things like being personally locked up in Bruges and forced to watch people have their heads chopped off for three months and, you know, the whole Flemish revolt and wars against France, things like that. But despite the latest iteration of Burgundian governance in Gelders not being as oppressive as the first, 20 years of military occupation had still allowed enough resentment in Gelders to simmer to be able to now make almost everybody agree that Duke Charles II was for sure a more attractive prospect than what they had. But it wasn't all rosy for the young Duke. Like the rest of the territories in the Low Countries, Gelders had been bled dry by the last two decades of war under Burgundian and Habsburg rule. The financial situation in Gelders was so bad that it would take Charles of Egmont eight years before he was finally able to pay off the remaining money owed for his ransom and secure the release of Vincent van Meur's grandson, whom he had initially promised would only spend three months in jail. There was also the slight issue that Maximilian's son, Philip the Handsome, was also going around calling himself the Duke of Gelders. Be that as it may, Charles of Egmont had the overwhelming support of powerful cities like Arnhem and Duisburg, which sent weapons and provisions. The small towns also rallied to him far more earnestly than they ever had for Burgundian or Habsburg officers, and even a couple of monasteries sent money his way. He went on the offensive and shored up his position by taking Wacheningen, the only town which had remained loyal to the Burgundian side. Within a month, the only remaining resistance to him in the province was championed by two noblemen, Peter van Hemert and Cornelis Pieck, who controlled two castles, one named Puderoyen and the other Beast, as well as his second cousin, Frederick, Count of Egmont, who was in Bar and Buren. By the end of April 1492, Maximilian had come to learn that Gelders had slipped out of his grasp. He wrote a sternly worded letter, though, in which he somewhat threatened, somewhat pleaded with Charles of Egmont and the towns of Gelders to step back from the course that they had started to take and to return their obedience to him. He lambasted Vincent van Meurs, the man who had successfully raised the ransom to free Charles of Egmont, as an agitator and played the honour card, suggesting to Charles that he had always treated him like a true son, which is not how Charles felt about their relationship at all. Maximilian was definitely making a few appeals to any Stockholm Syndrome which Charles might have felt after an almost entire lifetime in captivity, 
However, Charles still remained bitter towards Maximilian and the Habsburgs. How he felt about the French, on the other hand, was completely the opposite, and that would cause its own specific issues for him and Gelders later on. Instead of heeding Max's pleas and entreaties, Charles continued traveling around Gelders with a huge retinue, making joyous entries, receiving homage, and reaffirming the different rights of towns and cities. All of this and his elaborate court style, not to mention his massive entourage, cost a fortune, which did not help the territorial financial woes that were also being heaped upon his newly ducal shoulders. But you have to make an impression, I suppose, and, you know, these things cost money. On June 19, 1492, Charles of Egmont wrote to the Emperor Frederick III asking it to be recognized by him as the rightful Duke of Gelders. This pretty much amounts to Charles writing to somebody's granddad, asking for a title that his son is wielding already on behalf of his grandson, but asking for it anyway. And also, good to still remember, in the minds of Gelders, the Empire, i.e. Frederick, equaled freedom, whereas Burgundy, i.e. Maximilian, equaled oppression. Now, the usual way that one would make such a request to the Emperor was by sending a big entourage, which would hand out wads of cash to all the imperial and papal officials that they would come across along the way. Not being in a position to do this, however, Charles had to make do with just this letter, in which he explained the whole backstory as to why the title should actually be his, and pledged to recognize the emperor as supreme authority over him. He also wrote to Maximilian, explaining that he had made this request to Frederick III, that all he wanted was peace with both Maximilian and Philip the Handsome, and denying that he was planning to attack them with French troops. The situation within Gelders remained in limbo at the beginning of 1493, with the exception that in April of that year, Charles was able to capture one of those remaining strongholds which held out against him, the castle of Puderoyen. We will leave Gelders here for this episode now, however, because it was at this point that events abroad were falling into place which would have a lasting impact on the shape of things to come. One of these things was the negotiation for something called the Treaty of Sonli. But before we get to that, and so much more, here's an ad break to, you know, get us money. We have no idea what it's about, this ad. Probably a mattress. Maybe there's even no content in the small space coming because no ad space was sold and the next few seconds will not only be slightly awkward, but will also not make us a cent. It will just jump back into the second half of this episode, leaving no chance for you to have a breather. Really, that could happen. An ad break with no ad. Sounds like a dream. All right. We are like folk with wheelbarrows. It's all in front of us. Exciting times, these ones. Here we go. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Welcome back. At this point in our narrative, we are about to begin the reign of Archduke Philip the Handsome, which is going to be a pretty quick but pretty wild ride. Furthermore, as handsome as he purportedly was, it is not Philip's life to which the history of the Netherlands will be tethered for the upcoming three decades. Rather, it is that of his sister, Margaret of Austria, and so it is with her that we shall start. Margaret had been married to the now French king, Charles VIII, since she was two. She had been raised to become the Queen of France, however this had been unexpectedly stripped away from her in late 1491, following her father's shenanigans in trying to outplay Charles VIII by marrying Anne of Brittany. Charles VIII had responded to this by dumping Margaret and heading off to Brittany in person to marry Anne himself, 
completely undermining Maximilian and avoiding the undesirable situation of being flanked by Habsburgs on multiple fronts. Nobody wants to be the meat in a Habsburger burger. Once cast asunder, Margaret started living in a weird limbo, simultaneously free from blame, yet suffering extreme humiliation. She was shuffled off to Melun by Charles VIII, who, despite how close they had been throughout their childhood marriage, now ceased considering her with any regard at all. There is correspondence from Margaret at this time to Anne of Beaujeu, Charles VIII's elder sister who had ruled as regent in his stead and with whom Margaret shared close ties. The letter reveals Margaret's strong character, as well as her personal emotional struggle during this time. In the letter, Margaret begs Anne to not let her be separated from a companion whom Charles had ordered to leave. She writes, quote, Madam, my good aunt, I must complain to you as to the one in whom I have my hope of my cousin, whom they wanted to rob me of, who is all the pastime that I have, and when I shall have lost her, I no longer know what I will do. End quote. Compared to the extremely privileged previous decade of childhood that Margaret had enjoyed in Ambois, being abruptly slapped in the face with this new reality she found herself in, must have stung. Once again, we see in her experience a young woman being deprived of her position when political circumstances no longer necessitated her occupation of it. Biographer Jane de Jong described Margaret's letter as, quote, a touching expression of youthful determination, end quote. Comparing her way of communicating to the messy manner of her father Maximilian, quote, Margaret in her 12th year appears to have far surpassed her father in capacity of expression and conciseness of style, end quote. In parts of her homeland, people reacted angrily to the treatment of her, to her misfortune. In Burgundian lands under French occupation, the treatment of Margaret is said to have catalyzed anti-French aggression, such as in Arras in November 1492, where people rose up against the French garrison to cries of, Viva Bourguignon! On May 23rd, 1493, both Margaret and those towns and villages enduring the ongoing war were finally released from their respective forms of feckless fortune when Margaret's father Maximilian and brother Philip signed a peace deal with the French king Charles VIII called the Treaty of Saint-Lys. Saint-Lys brought an end to the conflict that had raged on and off for decades between Burgundy and France and which had even been the cause of Margaret going to France in the first place. Her marriage to Charles VIII had been in the terms of the Treaty of Arras. Now, the Treaty of Saint-Lys would bring her back. In addition to releasing Margaret back to the Burgundian court, the conditions of Saint-Lys included that the territories of Artois, Charolais, and the French Comte, Imperial Burgundy, as part of her dower lands, would be returned to the Burgundian fold, although a few cities and castles would remain under French control. The original Duchy of Burgundy, however, would not be returned to the family who had, until recently, borne its name, whose independent power had begun in the territory over a century before, and whose most eminent ancestors were even buried at a special tomb in its capital, Dijon. Anyway, that ducal family were not the Burgundians any longer. They were the Habsburgs, and these Habsburgs had to agree to a few things in this treaty, like that they would not seek to recover the lost Duchy of Burgundy by military means. Maximilian also had to stop calling himself the Duke of Brittany, and a promise was also made of ensuing friendship between Charles VIII and Philip the Handsome. The treaty also explicitly named the allies which each side counted on, with the Duke of Gelders, Charles of Egmont, being placed on the French side. Sonli also granted the fiefdom of the House of Flanders to the Empire, so no longer was Flanders beholden as a vassal to the French king. Yes, that's right, that's all it took. Actually, this would still be contentious for a while, but you know, baby steps. The Treaty of Sonli was generally pretty good for the Burgundian Habsburg side. Really, it was a magnanimous one by the French king. Why then did he undo so many years of his predecessor's bitter entanglements in low country affairs? 
Well, in the interest of keeping our eyes on the wider context of European politics at the time, it is worth for a moment considering Charles VIII's situation in 1492-93, because Saint-Louis is actually one part of a wider pattern of international policy that would have far-reaching consequences for all of Western Europe. The young king had succeeded Louis XI after his sister had spent his childhood merely trying to hold the whole thing together. Now that he was ruling in his own right, he looked at the nefarious web of international conflict and division that his father, the Universal Spider, had long woven and which he had inherited. He now sought to unweave much of this web. Sonny was actually the third of a triplet of international treaties that he signed over the course of 1492-93, which brought him accord with the English king, Henry VII, via the Treaty of Etape, the Spanish monarchs, Ferdinand and Catherine of Aragon and Castile, with the Treaty of Barcelona, and now Burgundy and the Habsburgs, with the Treaty of Sondi. This was a significant and comprehensive peace process that deliberately aimed to extricate France from the bog of conflicts it had long been mired in. That is why the terms of each were largely beneficial to France's counterpart within. For example, Charles VIII paid off French debt to England in the Treaty of Etape, ceded disputed territories in the Pyrenees in the Treaty of Barcelona, and, well, we've already mentioned what Burgundy got in the Treaty of Sonny. Whatever Charles VIII's exact motives for doing this, it was a really effective move. He was facing a coalition between England, Burgundy, and Spain that had to be dealt with, and by giving such big concessions, he had held their potential combined force at bay. Furthermore, and in the historical narrative often cited as the main reason for his concessionary approach, he was shortly to set off on an Italian campaign, making big on his claim to the crown of Naples. This would be a costly, fruitless endeavour that would outlast not only Charles VIII, but also the bloke who would succeed him, and would occupy much of the attention of the next king after that too. So why is this important for us? Well, the upcoming decades of French royal obsession in Italy will give the Low Countries something they have not had for quite a while. A bit of breathing space from French attention, aka attention. The burden of having to constantly worry about impending or actual French invasion was lessened. This is bound to make everyone relax a little bit more, and perhaps would have the biggest influence on the era of relative stability that would now unfold. As for Margaret, after over a year of lingering in Melun, with consternation and uncertainty her most constant companions, she could now leave her whole French royal experience behind. Thanks to the terms of Sonny, she and her entourage returned north, her procession through the lands of her now former subjects characterized by the grace, dignity, wit, and humor for which, as an adult, she would become renowned. One story recounts how she had been given a local wine in one French town that was meant to honor her, but it had been a particularly poor harvest, and the wine that year was unfavorably sour. Upon tasting it, her quick intelligence and tongue made the play on the French words salmon, meaning branch, by which she meant the grapevine, and sermon, which means oath, and by which she meant specifically the oath of the king. She made the quip that both sermon and sermon had been worthless that year. Snap! From young Margaret's point of view, she was now heading back to a homeland, a court, and a family that she had not known since being handed over by them to France as a two-year-old. When she arrived in Cambrai on June 12th, 1493, she was met by one family member who could maybe appreciate the depths of her travails as a political pawn more than most, a woman who had had her own wealth of both amazing and terrible experiences to draw upon as just such a pawn, Margaret's great step-grandmother and namesake, Margaret of York. The elder Margaret had little idea of what sort of person the younger would be arriving back into the Burgundian fold, but they had the chance to reacquaint as they headed back to the former Dowers town of Meekelen, and I like that thought. It's nice. They arrived on 22nd of June, 1493. How excited Margaret's family must have been to have her back, 
Now surely she could stay safe in their home and together they could make up for the years that they had already lost. But no. That is looking at it with a lens that is way out of focus for these times. Of course they were happy to see each other and become acquainted, but we are talking about the Habsburgs here, and specifically the Habsburgs as moulded by the imperial idealism of their newest patriarch, Maximilian, the white knight emperor of fairy tales and fables. His primary agenda was always doing whatever served the interests of his family's prestige. It is worth quoting Jane de Jong once more here for a second, if only to enjoy the imagery she invokes. Quote, These interests were in large measure the butterfly imaginings of Maximilian's tireless brain, and he pursued them with his unquenchable energy, his irrational optimism. To be Duke of Brittany, or King of Hungary, Emperor of Byzantium, leader of the holy war against the Turks, all this appeared alternately or simultaneously upon his program, giving himself no time for regret over whatever escaped him or for lengthy speculation upon the results of this mercurial butterfly chase. Maximilian wandered about through the empire, through Europe, inconsequent and charming, the despair of his counsellors, the delight of his subjects, the idol of his hunting friends, the laughingstock of perspicacious ambassadors like Machiavelli the Florentine or Quirini the Venetian. End quote. From Maximilian's point of view, in the flurry and flutter of his mercurial butterfly chase, the return of Margaret re-equipped him with an extremely valuable political pawn. Once again in charge of her life, Maximilian could now utilize Margaret's hand in marriage for his dynastic interests. Welcome back, beloved daughter. Now hang tight while your brother and I find someone else to whom we can wedge you and send you. All for the family? Huzzah! That is where we will leave Margaret just for now. Return to Burgundian lands for a time, but fully aware that her destiny was not in her hands. Before we wrap up, following the signing of Sondi in May 1493, several other dominoes fell that transformed the wider political stage of Western Europe. Philip the Handsome, Max's son and Margaret's older brother, turned 15 two months after the accord, legitimizing him to formally bear his princely mantle on his own handsome shoulders. Less than a month after that, in August 1493, his paternal grandfather and Max's father, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, did the boardwalk boogie into the big beyond and took his leave of this world. After a pretty impressive 78 years, 41 of them in possession of the imperial scepter. This obviously had big implications for Philip as well, not to mention for his father, who now became for all intents and purposes anyway, the new emperor. The States General took this opportunity to formally request slash declare that the Prince Naturel of the Burgundian realm, Philip, be elevated unto his due and become the Archduke of Burgundy in his own right. From this point, Burgundy would once more be ruled by a native male. This, in and of itself, made a huge difference to the unruliness meter, with the willingness of Burgundian and particularly Netherlandish and particularly Flemish subjects to comply with ducal authority at the highest levels they had been since, well, the last time they'd had a native of age male duke. Gelders being an exception, of course, not to mention other hotspots like Friesland. We'll get to it. During this entire period of warfare and revolt, the Low Countries had changed in more ways than one. Socially and demographically, there had been both big and subtle shifts. Small towns and villages all across the southern low countries had been decimated, if not entirely wiped out, during the years of warfare and consequent looting and pillaging by soldiers. Poverty abounded, not just in Flanders, but across the low countries, as we saw with the Speckhalders, those rovers who had wandered the countryside begging and stealing during the bread and cheese revolt in Holland, which, ding, 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 brings us to today's installment of, bet you didn't know that was Dutch, the English word rover, which today we use for a person who likes to aimlessly wander around, which honestly is one of the best things you can do in life, was also archaically used in the way we just used it to mean something like a pirate, which again is also one of the best things you can be in life. 
This segment is ticking all the boxes. The word rover comes from the Middle Dutch word rofen, meaning to rob. How rude that we have decided that the most generic name for our most loyal companion is a robber. Anyway, rover, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Now back to it. During these past years, some of the great towns in the Low Countries had also undergone entire identity crises. Ypres' population had crashed from maybe 80,000 at its peak eight decades earlier to just 5,000 now. Huge swaths of the textile industry had left for smaller West Flemish towns such as Honskoden, which were taking the reins of an industry that had been the foundation stone of the big Flemish cities since their inception. The entire international commerce sector of Bruges, likewise built out of the textile industry, but having expanded so greatly from there, had pretty much up and shifted to Antwerp as a direct result of the Flemish revolt, dramatically changing the identities of both cities. The economic crisis surrounding the revaluing of the coinage, which we spoke about in episode 43, prevailed and would continue to be a problem for some time, as ardently as it was tackled within the state's general. Simply put, things were different now than they had been in 1477 because of nearly 20 years of extra war and deprivation that had been heaped onto the similar issues that already existed in 1477. Subtle shifts had occurred, however, that were more reminiscent of butterfly wings, shifts that over time would blend into massive hurricanes of change. During the previous few decades, the ways that people in the realm conceptualized, understood, and relied upon their polity, the way that they were governed, had shifted. Most of all, this was because the role of the states general had changed, with the institution cementing itself into a position of irrevocable importance. All of the territories that made up the Low Countries and Burgundy were still beholden to the whims of their local nobility and, importantly, the allegiances that their local nobility held, essentially, whether they were with the Dukes of Burgundy or the French King. As you will recall, Charles the Bold's death had seen many nobles cast off their loyalty to the former and pledged to the latter, moving from Burgundy to France. Some had wavered hither and thither between the two over the years. Nonetheless, no matter which prince enjoyed the allegiance of the noble estate, there were only very few cases during this 15 years of turmoil when members of the nobility went into direct revolt against their prince, being the Hook-affiliated uprisings in Holland and Utrecht, and what was going down in Gelders, which we covered in the first half of this episode. You are probably screaming something like, didn't we just spend half a year on the Flemish revolt? Yes, we did. But, semantics. From the point of view of Philip of Cleves and his rebel allies, the Flemish revolt was always on behalf of their prince, Philip the Handsome, and against the tyranny of his father, their not-prince, Maximilian. In accordance with an argument made by Königsberger in his tome, Monarchy, States, Generals and Parliaments, in general, very few of the nobility put provincial or local loyalty or agenda before loyalty to their prince, mainly because the nobility generally attached themselves to the rising star of said prince and were willing to ride that star as far as they could. The other estates, being the clergy and the city burghers of each province, were not death-riding the coattails of the princely crust as much, rather working around the ruler's machinations with eyes to pushing their own agendas whenever they could, and this is important to keep in mind. Societies are in constant flux, and in this flux, behaviours transition between being uncustomary and customary. This transition happens because every person involved is pushing the limits of what is collectively acceptable based on where their own interests and agendas lie. In times of crisis, within the ducal court and amongst the upper nobility, the rising eminence of these other estates meant that they could push for greater freedoms. But also, strangely, they could provide some sense of stability in times when there really was none. Examples include the devisement of the great privilege, when the upper nobility was in absolute crisis around Mary's succession to Charles the Bold, and many Burgundian nobles had jumped ship to the French king's vassalage. 
The burghers and the clergy, on the other hand, had nowhere else to jump. Their interest lay in holding the state apparatus together while pushing for greater civil rights. In the aftermath of Charles Bold's death, the behaviour of many members of the estate was to react against the decades of centralisation and dense bureaucracy that the Burgundian dukes had been shoving down everyone's throats. From 1477, there was an ardent push amongst the estates towards the structure and culture of a more federative system of governance across all the low countries, with a ruler who was a part of the apparatus rather than the sole determiner of how it looked. It is quite remarkable that the states general as an institutional body had managed to uphold and even strengthen its validity and legitimacy throughout the entire period. Much of the turmoil generated came from the Flemish town estates while openly manipulating the states general. Yet the states general was representative of the diversity of ideas and opinions generated from all the many different identities that existed across the Low Countries. While the rebellious and even revolutionary elements pushed the limits, more conservative elements sought to rein them back in. Both these opposite actions happened within the same parliamentary body. What emerged in hindsight looks like tempered, even undeliberate progressiveness. The envelope of what was customarily acceptable had been pushed quite absurdly far, but had also been self-regulated. Perhaps the best example of what we mean by this is in one of the rights extracted via the Great Privilege and reaffirmed in 1488, the right for the States General to assemble without ducal permission had been granted by Mary, basically under duress, and it had even been used during the chaos of Maximilian's imprisonment in Bruges. Spoiler alert, the rights of the Great Privilege are about to be pretty much fully revoked, including the right to self-assembly. But again, with hindsight, the greatest impact of having achieved the right came from its very existence rather than its actual utilization as a political maneuver. That is the process of something shifting from what is unacceptable and uncustomary towards what is acceptable and customary, the boundaries of what a parliamentary body could attain from a prince or princess had been extended and even though they would be brought back in, in the short term, on a long-term basis, effectively the genie was out of the bottle. By the end of Maximilian's first tenure as regent, the States General was vastly stronger than it had been by the end of Charles the Bolt. As you may recall, at this time, Albert of Saxony had taken over as Max's lieutenant, and he had been sure to include the States General as much as he could in the decision-making process, giving tacit ducal consent to the elevated position that the body had come to hold in the general understanding of how the entire region of the Low Countries was governed. The biggest crisis for everybody was the currency turmoil, and it was from within the States General that this problem was being tackled. With the death of Emperor Frederick III and the imminent ascension of Maximilian to the imperial throne, it was the States General that now called for Philip to be formalized as the new ruler. The transfer of powers occurred shortly thereafter, and in September 1494, Philip was inaugurated as the Ricci Didge, O Naturel, Archduke of Burgundy and Lord of the Netherlands. According to Olivier de la Marche, Maximilian gave his son some solid advice that shows that the Austrian white knight prince come emperor had in fact learned a thing or two about dealing with the inhabitants of these swampy realms. Quote, And to let you know the truth, I write this as a precept to you. Never to give authority to those who should live under your command and authority. But I should advise you well that you should ask their counsel and aid to conduct your great affairs. End quote. And it is to future episodes of History of the Netherlands that we shall leave those great affairs when Philip the Handsome goes to work putting his stamp on the Low Countries before finding himself a handsome opportunity for an Iberian holiday. Tot the Falcon de Kier. Till next time. Dewey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. 
We'd like to give a big thanks to all the people who help make this show possible. Those of our Patreon supporters who get online and join the great privilege of Patreon, helping us to keep these lights in this new office on. We'd like to start today with John Bronkhorst. Bronky, thank you very much. Claire Hamilton, Russell, CHR, could not do this without you. There is Dita Vislauzilova, no doubt. I have mispronounced your name, Dita, I'm sorry. No doubt you are used to it. As someone with a complex Hungarian last name myself, I feel you, Dietz, but thank you. And Shelly you, Shelly Turtles, thanks so much for jumping on board. And finally, Jude Espiritu, Vibesy. Really appreciate your support out there, Vibesy. Keep up the good work. You can join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. And don't forget, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are there at history of NL. There you can correspond with us. You can have a chat. You can also check out the little tidbits that we try to put out on a day-to-day basis. Join in the conversation with all this swampy fun there on Twitter. As for us, that is it for another episode. We will see you next time on History of the Netherlands. Doei! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.